But that's cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is. Rocking and rolling and whatnot. What's going on? I'm Lee McCormick. Welcome to Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast, sidecast, rocking and rolling and whatnot. Episode 37, Top 20 Guitarists, Part 2, 13 to 7. Thanks for listening or downloading from the website TrampsLegusPod.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you found it. Stay in touch and updated at our Facebook group page, Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast. I hope you checked out the last episode, part one, where we started this countdown ranking my favorite guitarists, 20 to 14. All right, cool. You know the deal. Let's get rocking here. Let's get into part two. More guitar. More guitar. Coming in at lucky number 13, and Joe fucking Perry. Pardon my French mama. Anybody got a cold beer down there?
Joe Perry. Sorry, Joe fucking Perry, right? Joe fucking Perry. Born September 10th, 1950, Lawrence, Massachusetts. Easily one of the coolest cats in rock and roll, right? The groove of Joe Perry's guitar, that's the sound of Aerosmith, right? Those groovy riffs, sloppy and badass, right? Some guys just have the spirit of rock and roll, and Joe's one of those guys, right? You know, the personality comes out in the playing, right? And that's definitely the deal with Joe. Right, so many great riffs. Uh, you know, Mama Kin. How's that one go? It's an E. Right, uh, you know, back in the saddle, he's playing the six string bass. Toys in the attic, combination, uh, sweet emotion. Verse riff on that. And how the lick is a. Standing on the front, just shaking your ass. Loving an elevator was a cool one. I love that middle guitar section of love in an elevator you know joe goes into this this incredible solo where it's got different parts right? different sections of the solo it's a whole little middle interlude section where joe just rips man it's amazing a combination is awesome uh, walk this way uh, you know that's a classic riff i've taught that riff many times to guitar students <laughs> And then the, the, even the comping part on the verses is pretty cool. He's playing like all these little comping things on the in the key of C, right? Right, 
right? Crying, I love the solo and crying, so great. Um, Sick as a dog, so many great songs, right? You know, he's a gearhead, right? Always playing on stage with a wall of amps, all different kind of amps, Fender Twins, Marshall Stacks, right? Little weird odd things, Voxes, right? Playing a different guitar for each song live, right? You know, I love that Gibson Billy guitar. He's got the BB King Lucille Custom, like a 335 hollow body. It's white. His wife Billy's face is painted on the guitar, right? Beautiful guitar. Sounds awesome, right? Frankenstrat, we've seen. He usually uses that one for Sweet Emotion Live. It's got a, you know, Frankenstrat made up of different parts to make one guitar, right? I think it's got like a left-handed neck on it, which is, you know, odd and cool looking, right? Gibson Les Paul, you know, Joe Perry's known for playing Les Pauls. He had a signature Les Paul come out in the 80s there. When you're thinking of loving an elevator in that video, he's playing like that black uh, custom Les Paul. So awesome, right? You know, he plays those uh, like like Lucite guitars. Or is it Dan Armstrong? Yeah, Dan Armstrong. Dan Armstrong Lucite guitars, right? You'll see him play Draw the Line, tune it to an open chord so we can play the slide on that. And then he might even put the guitar down, take his shirt off, and then just whip the guitar with his shirt. The guy's an animal on stage, man. <laughs> that killer guitar god stance, right? Just so much style and vibe. Right? That's the deal, man. Everybody wants to be cool like Joe. Like Joe fucking Perry. I'm Joe Perry. Let's see, I got my first guitar when I was about 12 years old, and I finally convinced my parents that it was the one instrument I was going to play with any kind of consistency. So they ordered me a Sears Silvertone the action was about an inch and a half high from off the neck. So my, my hands got strong fast. A lot of times you can sit there and diddle and, and, and you know, and learn some lines and practice some scales and that kind of thing. And then you sit down and you want to go and play with somebody else. And all of a sudden those things want to be locked in time. And uh, if, you, if you're not practicing to a metronome, it'll, uh, it'll put you in a whole new world. Usually I use two, two combos, uh, one either a, a Vox-ish sounding amp and also a Fender-ish sounding amp, whether it's a, a boutique amp here or, a, or like a one right off the, off the production line or a custom, custom amp. I usually use two of those, one for more of a, of a crunchy sound and then one for a cleaner sound. And, uh, so when I drop the, uh, all, the, all the effect pedals off, I get a nice clean ring off the guitar. And then when I want to make it dirty, I can just nail it. This tour, I'm probably going to lean heavy on my, uh, I call it the Billy guitar. It's the guitar with uh, it's the white guitar that has my wife's picture on it. It's a 335. It's a really good versatile guitar. I mean, it can be really clean when you bang out the chords. Uh, and then uh, if I want to get nasty and dirty, it's, uh, it just opens right up. So it's a, it's a, a good go-to guitar. The strange thing about this guitar is the volume knob is in the middle right there, and that's not very ergonomically correct. However, I've been playing it so long now. See that? Do, do it again, do it again. Actually, the best thing to do is just leave it turned up all the way, all the time, on 11. That one goes to 11? Say that again? That one goes to 11? Actually, yes, they do. This one... 
this one goes to 11. Th these two, I'm not quite sure what they do, so I leave them alone. You know. But this is. Number 12, you better lay off of his blue suede shoes. I'm talking about Carl Perkins. Right now, I want to introduce a great buddy of mine, a young man that, uh, that you have seen once tonight. We wanted to bring him back again because he's in such popular demand. He comes from the state of Tennessee, was raised right across the Mississippi River from where I was raised, on the flat Black Delta land. The one of the finest talents in the business. Let's hear now from Mr. Carl Perkins. What is that? Thank you, John, very much. I'd like to do one side of my latest Columbia record. This one is about a young man <laughs> riding a greyhound dog. Goes like this. Well, I walked up to a window. I said, give me a ticket, please. She said, where to, mister? I said, that's all right with me. I'm just restless. Get on out of town Take me where the living's easy That's where this boy will be found Uh-huh, all right I said, 
said, honey, tell that driver Put his big foot in that gas Run this gray dog just as long as it will last I'm just resting I need to get on out of town I gotta go right now Take me where the living's easy Baby, that's where I'll be found Tell that driver, take this big rig down the road Drop this old country boy off any place he wants to go I'm just wrestling I need to get on out of town I gotta go right now Take me where the living's easy Baby, that's where I'll be found All right, there we go, John Taking nothing but the clothes on my back and my big guitar, I'm just wrestling. I need to get on out of town, I gotta go right now. Take me where the living's easy, baby, that's where I'll be found. All right, here we go out I want you to, to, if you don't mind, Carl, I'd like you to stay out and help us on some songs. Play the I'd guitar. Love to. One of the greatest guitar players as well as songwriters and singers in the business. Thank Appreciate you. a little help on the guitar, all right? Love it. Carl Perkins, born April 9th, 1932, in Tiptonville, Tennessee, died January 19th, 1998. The Rockabilly King, Carl Perkins. Right? This man invented some of the tastiest guitar licks ever, combining hillbilly music with blues and jazz and gospel and then putting a beat to it, right? That rhythm, inventing rock and roll. All those great songs. Bopping the blues. Honey Don't. Oh, I love Honey Don't, right? That, that, uh... Well, how come you say you will when you won't? Tell me that you do, baby, when you don't. That, that chord change from E to C is nice. Let me know, honey, how you feel. Tell the truth now, is love real? But uh-huh Honey, don't Honey, don't Honey, don't Honey, don't Honey, don't Say you will when you won't Uh-huh, honey, don't Everybody's trying to be my baby is a good one Restless, uh, Gone, 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 Matchbox. <laughs> what a lick, man. Carl Perkins is so awesome. Right? In the 50s, he played uh, Les Pauls, right? He had uh, these gold top Les Pauls. He had two of them. He had a 52, 
And then you got a 55 that had a, a Bigsby on it. Glad all over. Put your cat clothes on. Right, those rockabilly standards. Right, came out of Carl Perkins, Sun Records, and those Les Pauls. Right, he's just a sweet, nice man. You know, and it comes out in his guitar. You know, he's just got that big smile. You know, when I hear Carl Perkins music, it makes me want to grab a guitar and, and just play along, right? Great music, great guy. I need his book. He put out a book before he passed away called Go Cat Go. I need to get that and check it out, man. One of the greatest ever. I love Mr. Carl Perkins. And when did you get your first musical instrument? I'm assuming it was the guitar. Yeah, it was... uh... Really, the guitar was, it was a Gene Autry. I know you've seen them little cheap sure, things. Sure, sure. Don't uh, you call Gene Autry cheap. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't I'm kidding, no, I'm kidding. I'm sorry, Mr. Autry, you too, Tom. <laughs> I'm kidding. The guitars were, uh, they were you have a mail order, you know. Exactly. And they cost about twelve ninety-five. My daddy, I wanted one so bad. And I don't really know why, but the guitar was made right and just, it just fit me. I just, I loved it. And I'd go mm-hmm. to people's houses. I'd stay all night with boys if they had a guitar there just so I could, you know, fool Strum around, fool yeah, around, get yeah. it. One Saturday, my dad came home from town, and he had an old beat-up guitar. He had given $3 and the only chicken we had to an old black man by the name of John Westbrook. And this little boy named Carl Perkins was in heaven with that guitar. It was... It fretted wrong, it was worn out, but it was mine. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that started the fire. The difference between the sound of rockabilly and rock and roll? Well, the first rockabilly record to be recorded was uh, by Elvis, and it was a Bill Monroe country classic. The B- Bill did it like, Blue Moon of Kentucky. Keep on shining Oh, shine on The one that's gone And proved untrue Now the only difference in that And rockabilly's <laughs> I said blue moon of Kentucky Won't you keep on shining Yeah, shine on The one that's gone And proved untrue let me tell you, Blue Moon, I can tell you, keep on shining. Shine on, one that's going to do, do, do. I was playing one of the talks near my hometown, and I've been watching this boy and girl jitterbugging, and they were really good. You know, when you're playing and you pick out that certain pair that really yeah. is rocking. And they end, they finished the dancing when I finished the song right in front of the little bandstand where I was playing and he said to her in a good stout tone he said "Uh uh-uh don't step on my suede well I hadn't owned a pair of them shoes at that time Uh, they were getting kind of popular around Jackson and Memphis and she said oh I'm sorry excuse me yeah and looked hurt and I thought you fool I mean that's a stupid shoe that's a pretty girl man pay some attention to the lady never mind (laughs) But I could not get that out of my mind. I, uh, I was living in a government project house in Jackson, Tennessee, with my wife and two children. And I, I couldn't go to sleep, man. I, I, I just couldn't. Don't step on my sweaters. I thought the old nurse rhyme, one for the money, two for the show, three get ready, and four to go. I said, well, look out. Down them concrete steps, got my guitar. One for the money, dun, dun. 
My wife came to the top of the steps. I had two small babies. She said, Carl, you gonna wake up the children? Whose song is that? I said, it's ours. She said, write the song and we'll rock them back to sleep. So I took a, three iced potatoes out of a brown paper bag. I couldn't find anything to write it on. And the original words are framed in my house, but it's spelled blue suede, S-W-A-D-E. <laughs> See, I knew nothing about the shoes. <laughs> what, what would S-U-E-D-E? Suede. Suede. <laughs> well, it's one for the money, two for the shoe. Three to get ready now, go cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede sheet. You can do anything but make off of my blue suede sheet. Or you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place. Do anything that you want to do, uh-huh, uh-huh, and lay off of my shoes. Don't you step on my blue suede sheet. Yeah, you can do anything but lay off of my blue suede shoe. Now let's go get leather rock. Well, you can burn my house, steal my car, drink my liquor from an old fruit jar. Thing you wanna do, the hot aunt children lay off of them shoes and don't you step on my blue suede shoe. Well, you can do anything but lay off of my blue suede shoe. Now we're gonna rock on, baby. Say, blue, blue, blue suede shoe. Number 11, well, I'm the king, but you better believe this guy's the boss, Bruce Springsteen.
said I won't that day I cried And the keys to your dirtiest Cadillac In the darkness of your room Your mother calls you by your true name You remember the faces The places and names You know it's never over It's relentless as a rain
Bruce Springsteen, born September 23rd, 1949, Long Branch, New Jersey. Another one of those singer-songwriter lead guitar players, right? His guitar is another extension of himself. His main tool for writing songs, going back to that Bob Dylan singer-songwriter model, right? And as well as that, you know, Bruce is a, you know, he's a rocker and he's got years of bar band experience, right? He knows how to rock. He knows how to turn a crowd on. He shines live with that guitar. When he's creating his albums, it's a little more controlled. It's looser live. He turns it up. He lets it fly. A lot of good guitar parts on a lot of these great songs. If you look at like Born to Run, obviously that's a that's a great guitar part. Incident on 57th Street, amazing solo on that. Uh, like Prove It All Night, that live version in 78 where he had the the intro solo with the piano and the way he would build that solo was just, just amazing to me. Streets of Fire... Uh, cover me the solo on candy's room is just intense very cool murder incorporated i love that four chord progression he does there e minor to d g a e minor d g a right on his fender telecaster it's like a telecaster body esquire neck I think he paid $185 for it in 73. Right, I got my 78 Telecaster here. Right, Badlands, that's a great guitar part. Even like glory days. It's simple stuff, but it's it's hooky, man. I love it, right? Right? Springsteen is a great guitar player. He's underrated guitar player. I you know, I love all of his solos. It's you know, it's an extension of his songs. Like I said, these singer songwriters, lead singers, lead guitar players, they play guitar in a different kind of way. He's had some incredible guitar moments over the years on these records. It's the image, right? It's Bruce on stage with the guitar, sweating, letting that music pour out of him through his fingers, through the guitar. It's it's beautiful, man. I love it. Well, the first time I picked up a guitar was mm, six or seven years old <laughs> after I'd seen Elvis on uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And I got it home, and a great thing is I remember opening the case, and it was just lying there like this. And I remember the first thing that I noticed was the smell that came up out of the case, the smell of the wood. And uh, still one of the most promising smells uh, in the world to me to this day. One afternoon, I went into the backyard and all the neighborhood kids were there. And I took my guitar out and I strapped it on and I made a noise that sounded something like this. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. I simply had no ability to play a, a good solid chord at all, but I did enjoy beating the hell out of it. And it was just a moment as I stood there with the guitar strapped on me where I smelled blood for the first time. <laughs>
starting off the top ten, a real soul man, a Mr. Steve Cropper. Cropper, born October 21st, 1941. He was born on a farm near uh, near Willow Springs, Missouri. You know, funky grooves, funky licks, right? Soul guitar player. He's influenced by blues and country, playing with Booker T and the MGs, right? The, uh, the integration of the black and the white, the country, the blues, the soul, all coming together, all coming out in his playing. You know, he's played with, uh, you know, so many great, all, all the stuff on Stax, right? He, they were, he was part of the house band, Booker T and the MGs with Stax. So all those great Otis Redding records he's on. The Sam and Dave stuff, Soul Man, right? Play it, Steve. That's Soul Man look. That's great. That's him, right? Uh, you know, he did a great solo record in the early 70s where he did a lot of his hits uh, guitar-wise, but instrumental versions. Like he did, there's a version of Midnight Hour on that. The intro on Midnight Hour is Descending, right? 
I'm gonna search in D, right? Alright, and then for Knock on Wood, the Eddie Floyd song, he did the same lick, but in he reversed it, right? So he did it ascending. So that one is a uh, So same chords, but just played in reverse order. I love that, right? Time is tight is a good one. Uh, right, cool little licks. I dig his rhythm playing. Instead of playing chords on a verse, he would play like just a one-note little rhythm pattern, right? Like, uh, like I love the song Hip Hugger by Booker T and the MGs. So it's got that cool little intro on it. Um, uh, it's like a... That's it. And then he goes into one note. That's all he's playing on the verse. Green Onions is a good one. He's doubling that bass lick. The... Uh, that part double in the bass All right need that little solo All right wicked solo on that uh, melting pot is another great Booker T in the MG song. I love it kind of just vamps on that kind of minor chord. I think that's a, it's in a, like an A minor seventh. And then he goes up to a ninth. Right, neat little chords. Uh, Soul Man, obviously I mentioned. Uh, B-movie Boxcar Blues. I love Blues Brothers songs. All those Blues Brothers records are great. That's such a hot band, right, with Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper from Booker T. And, uh, you know, a lot of great guitar parts there. Steve Cropper, known for playing a Telecaster, right? He had that early 50s Fender Esquire that he played uh, on the early Booker T and the MG stuff. And then he moved to, uh, he got a, a, a Telecaster. It was like a, a white white Fender Telecaster. I think it was like a 62 or 63. Those were like his main guitars. All those hits. The amount of hits that came out of that guitar is uh, <laughs> it's amazing, right? I love his version of Rock Me Baby with Otis Redding. Now, Steve Cropper doesn't do a lot of like blues solos, but that one's really good. He actually does a blues guitar solo on that Rock Me Baby with Otis, which is really good. Check that one out. It's really good with the rhythm playing, comping behind the singers. Right? You got to let your, your personality come out in the instrument, right? It's a recognizable sound. Like, you know when the colonel is picking that guitar. Born in Missouri, raised in Memphis, Tennessee, one of the greatest cities on the planet. And uh, if anybody's a music buff, they know how much music came out of Memphis, Tennessee. And I had to be, uh, or fortunate, had to be, I was fortunate enough to be part of that, that whole uh, generation of music and, and really the, uh, the induction of uh, sort of R&B to the rest of the world. And I don't think any of us knew what we were doing when we were doing it. We were just having fun doing it. Uh, it was not work to us then. <clears throat> it was just fun something that we wanted to do and something we wanted to spend our lives doing, I guess, you know. Charlie Freeman was taking lessons uh, from a very, very good musician named Lynn Vernon. He was a great jazz guitar player. He knew a little rock and roll too, but he's a real good jazz guitar player. 
And so I would uh, leave school, go home, get my guitar, walk over to Charlie Freeman's house, and I'd be sitting on his front porch when he came back from his guitar lesson. And he'd teach me what he learned that day, and then I'd play behind him while he got to practice what he learned. And I kind of learned that way. And then, and then later, through some jobs, some odd jobs, I was able to afford a few guitar lessons, and I actually took about oh, about a month or so from Lynn Vernon. And he finally realized that I was going to be useless as a reader. He tricked me one day, and he said, okay, play this. And he played it, and I did. And he said, that's what I thought. That's not what's on the paper. You just played what I did. And uh, he said, you know, reading music's going nowhere with you. He said, why don't you get a couple of three records that you really want to learn how to play? And he said, bring them over, and I'll chart them out, and I'll, I'll teach them to you. So he did. Uh, actually, uh, my first guitar was a Gibson, I mean a Gibson, it was a Silvertone flat top from Sears and Roebuck. And uh, I don't think they say Roebuck anymore, they just say Sears. But uh, I wanted a guitar really bad and, uh, and I asked my dad and he said, oh, he said, I, I can't afford a guitar. So I literally mowed yards and I set bowling pins and I shined shoes and I did every odd job that I could get 50 cents for a quarter and I saved about $17, whatever it was in the catalog. Uh, to, to order that, that guitar. And um, my dad, bless his heart, said, well, son, he said, uh, you look pretty serious. He said, you learn how to play that and I'll buy you a good one. And uh, he kept his promise. He never discouraged me anymore about it. And uh, when I got a little better at it, he bought me a, an electric guitar, which was a, I believe it was like a 175 Gibson cutaway, real dot neck, great guitar, wish I still had it, <clears throat> sunburst. And uh, that, that was really a good one. And we went on from there. I think I traded that in on a Birdland, and then the next thing I know, I traded it in on, a, on an Esquire, and uh, then finally wound up getting a Telecaster. So I had an Esquire and a Telecaster, and then you start adding to the, <laughs> the first actual amplifier I still have. And uh, it's funny, I, I know that this interview is probably not dated, but I actually played that amplifier this afternoon. It was called a Fender Harvard. And, uh, that, that amplifier is the amplifier that, that came with the guitar, that my, the electric guitar my dad bought me. And uh, he kind of tricked me. He went over to this guy's house. He had this guitar for sale. And uh, he had it all set up, and he had it plugged into this little Fender Harvard amplifier, you know. And I played it and said, oh, this is great. And dad said, well, well, he said, we'll get back to you on this. You know, typical dad stuff. We'll get back to you on this. He said, I'm not sure we can afford it. And when he said afford it, I went, oh, well, here we go again. This isn't going to happen. And uh, it, was, it was a few weeks before Christmas. Christmas morning, there it was, laying out on the floor. So he surprised me pretty good. So uh, I used that amplifier, the little Fender Harvard, and I'll bring it out on special occasions. I use it, that's the same one that was on Green Onions. Uh, it's not on Soul Man, but it's on Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, the, the electric fills I did on that. And uh, I've used it on some Rod Stewart projects, like the Atlantic Crossing album and stuff like that. And I've done a few other pretty big sessions that I felt was worthy of that kind of Otis Redding stack sound and it, it still has that sound. Best place I can start I get asked all the time why a Telecaster? Mm -hmm. So I will tell you why a Telecaster or tell them why a Telecaster. Because if you use any other brand it's fine. When you hit a six string chord they all get together. It's not like a piano and you get all this a lot of distortion and harmonic distortion as well. You get a lot of so the engineers love the cleanness of a Telecaster. So I, when I started out, I was using an Esquire, which is really just a single pickup. Telecaster is all it is. If you take the pickguard off, there's the second hole already milled under the pickguard. The, what they didn't do is mill the pickguard to leave a hole. Did you, did you 
intentionally get the Esquire, or was it just what was available? No, it was it was something I could afford at the time. So it was a cheaper Telecaster at the time, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. An Esquire was, because it had one pickup, I guess. Right. I guess I wore the other one out a little bit, and I just kind of retired it and went to a Telecaster and uh, two pickup. And I always, for me, on sessions, I always played with both pickups. Put the uh, switch in the middle position. So you kill so the you buzz. So you got a little, little kill the buzz, yeah. basically. And uh, warmed up the little bright pickup because a Tele with two pickups is a little brighter. An Esquire is not as, it's more full rounded, full body, let's put it that way. And, uh, but a Telecaster, if you just use the back pickup, it's real bright. And I think that's what a lot of musicians run into today because they want a vintage Telecaster. That can get pretty expensive. Then they got to spend some more money to get foot switches to make it sound right. <laughs> I just had the tone and the volume wide open on the guitar. What happened with those, with the Esquire and with the Telecaster? <laughs> uh, well, they're, they're gone. All of them are gone. I had two Teles and one Esquire. And and I don't have many more. What happened to the, you told me a story about the, the one that had kind of gotten, gotten painted purple or to drink. Yeah, that one, uh, that was the old Esquire. And I had stripped it down, real easy to do, and went down to Western Auto in those days. That's sort of like going to Ace Hardware. And they had a spray paint called Candy Apple Red. And I went, wow, that's what I want to do. What I didn't do was prime the guitar, so it turned out purple instead of red. Which is kind of cool. <laughs> sort of grape colored. Yeah. And I said, well, okay, that's what it is. I played it for a long time. It was on a lot of Otis and a lot of Booker T stuff.
number nine, rocking on the free world, Neil Young.
still in love with you I wanna see you dance again Because I'm still in love with you On this harvest moon Neil Young was born November 12, 1945 in Toronto, Ontario. Singer, songwriter, lead guitar player, another one of those guys. He's got it all right, and it reflects in his guitar playing. All right, he's a killer acoustic and electric guitar player. I love that version of Harvest Moon. The guitar part on that is just beautiful, that acoustic guitar part. I especially love the solo version where he doesn't have the band with him, and you can just really hear. The guy's a fucking great guitar player. The guitar part on Needle and the Damage Done, that's a great one. Uh... Some stuff you know everyone plays uniquely and if you can harness that uniqueness you'll be, get your own style that's the, that's the key man you don't want to sound like anybody else right nobody sounds like neil young when they play guitar like that's him right the personality comes out in the music and it becomes second nature right he has a way of playing a note and it just it just sounds like neil young like his guitar playing is an extension of himself you know i think that's the, that's the best guitar players that's what it is right that's what i admire about all these guys on this list but it's like not only is he a great acoustic guitar player his electric guitar it's it's soulful guitar playing right you look at it like hey hey my my into the black that guitar part you know anything off ragged glory just a, a guitar record you know i love rocking in the free world that uh <laughs> Right? Just three chords, but when Neil plays them, you know it's Neil Young, right? Down by the river, cowgirl in the sand, uh, you know, change your mind, the loner, uh, you know, danger bird. Uh, so, so many great songs, right? Cinnamon Girl's got like drop D tuning on that. So he, he does drop D on the, on the high E and the low E. So you take the low E string, tune that down to a D. high E string you want to turn that one down to a D as well so down a whole step right alright so now you have some different you, you kind of have like that you know ringing in that D chord right so when you play the riff it sounds really kind of heavy right 
got that heavy Neil Young sound, right? He's complimenting his words, you know, writing the verses and the choruses with guitar riffs, licks, and solos, right? That's the thing about being a singer-songwriter. The lead guitar becomes just another extension of... Yeah, another tool of expressing the feeling of, of, of the, the emotion of the song, right? Incredible tone, right? Neil Young playing that, that Gibson Les Paul, Old Black. I think it's a 52 Les Paul, his number one, you know, electric guitar. You put like a tremolo bar on it, harnessing all that feedback and distortion at his fingertips, right? <laughs> it's amazing. And he's very like loose with his solos too. It's not like he, he does eight bar solos. He does like 108 bar solos, right? He'll just keep going, just keep repeating the pattern, just keep that, that, that chord progression just going and just, he'll just loop it and just solo and solo and just bring these emotions up and down and up and down. It's a combination of the tone he gets and the notes he plays and the, the emotion that he, he plays these notes with, right? It's just, it's all, it's, it's a big, it's everything, right? It all comes together, right? It's the personality, it's the vibe coming out in the music, it's the passion. His guitar solos are out of this world, they're, they're on another level. Well, my dad showed me, uh, you know, and got me an Arthur Godfrey ukulele when I was just a kid, you know. I don't know how old I was, nine or ten or something, and uh, played a song, uh, Played a song to me. I can still remember him playing, and I think my uncle wrote the song. So it was uh, called uh, "Out on the Lone Prairie" or something. I mean, it was some some kind of funky uh, prairie country song, you know. And so, how do, how were you when you first performed in front of an audience? About fifteen, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you were playing guitar by then. Yeah. Yeah. And what kind of guitar did you have? I had a Gibson, uh, Gibson Les Paul Jr. Uh, when I was playing, uh, when I started playing that. Uh, that would be, I think, the first uh, lead guitar that I had, yeah. I think the first amp that I had was an Ampeg Echo Twin. And that was a big amp. And then and then I graduated up to a Fender Tremolux, uh, which is a piggyback Fender amp. And then after that, I moved up to a, a number of amps. After that was really the Springfield came next after that. So that would be like a, a Kind of, some kind of bandmaster or something, the new black ones from CBS. I had one of those for a while. And then uh, when I moved into, uh, when I, when I uh, uh, formed Crazy Horse, uh, there was a guy in L.A. on Larchmont Boulevard called Saul Bettinen, who used to have a house full of instruments and amplifiers. And I went down there, and I, they had all these old Tweety amps and everything, and I loved all that old stuff. I always liked the old instruments. And I... Uh, I found this one amp in there. This was in 1967, I think. And I, I took my old Gretsch, I had a funky old Gretsch, and I took it down there and uh, and I played it through this amp and and the amp just took off. You didn't even have to play the guitar. You just plug it in and then suddenly the strings all started going. I mean, you turn it all the way up and it just fed back for days. You couldn't stop it from feeding back and none of the other amps did that. So I bought that one, it was like 75 bucks. And I took that home and I'm still playing it today. I still got the original uh, Buffalo Springfield Gretsch, and uh, I still have my. Uh, I have the White Falcon that I used, uh, that I used with, uh, with the Buffalo Springfield, and uh, Stephen Stills has one of the ones that I originally had. I gave it to him, and uh, and uh, he gave me another one that he he had found, which I liked even better, which was a, a stereo White Falcon, and I have that one now, and I I played that on a lot of early records with. Uh, with them and also uh, on my own. But I still have the old amp that I use almost all the time as my Fender Deluxe amp. And, and I traded uh, Jim Messina, a funky Gretsch that I had, a second Gretsch. 
I traded it for my Les Paul, my black Les Paul, and I put a Bigsby uh, Wang bar on that. Actually, there was one on it already, and I, I, I fixed that up and made it, attached it better, and, and uh, changed the bridge a little bit and made a few changes to that, and I'm still playing that today. So I got that 1968, and I still got it now. You use your tremolo a lot. Yeah, I hold it. I, I bend all my Wang bars. I take the Wang bar and you go, I bend it. That's the first thing I do is bend it so it's parallel to the strings so that I can play it and have it tucked in my hand mm -hmm. without having to worry about it. So then as I'm playing, I can just move it a little bit or I can touch it or I can. So that way it becomes second nature to me. You know, I just play Almost it. Almost like a voice like. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, some guys would think when I, when I played it at the beginning, they think, well, you know, you, you really should be bending your string and doing that like B.B. King does. And, I'm not BB King, you know. He he does it like nobody else can do that, you know. He does it. He's got this this tone. He just moves his. He's got this big old fat hand, and he's just got a super tone. And now there's a musician, and 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 uh, so, you know. So I, I I use this Wang bar because to me it gives me uh it gives it gives it a sound. If I can go crazy with it, but did I did I do that first? No, I didn't do that first. I mean, I, 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 I've done it for a long time, but you know, you got to look at guys like Lonnie Mack. He, he, he was, he took, he showed everybody how to use a Wang bar. And, uh, yet Hank Marvin, uh, from the shadows in England, mm -hmm. he, he, he used it a different way. He used it against an Echoplex machine. It wasn't an Echoplex. It was just a Revox tape recorder with a bunch of things wired together on it. So he got an echo repeat so that uh, the idea with that is to play the first note and then bend it. And so that the, the repeat of the note is going a little bit out of tune with the next note you play. So then the sound gets huge. It's like a, it's like a um, real-time hand-controlled flanging device, mm -hmm. you know. And so you, you, you get the sound to be twice as big. If you have an echo that'll play back, you know, what you already did, and then your next note is just a little out with it, that gets twice as big. So, you, you, you know, that's, that, that came from Hank Marvin. But, and, and Lonnie Mack and Hank Marvin are... are uh, different as night and day uh, but I like both of them and I took what they both do and combined that together and uh, you know I liked what that sounded like and I also really loved the way Floyd Kramer played the piano so I tried to combine that those pulls with uh, with the reverb and with the uh, with the echo and the, and the wang bar and the pull and everything to get developed as kind of a guitar version of a steel guitar Mm -hmm. uh, Floyd Kramer kind of a thing, you know, for for uh, for some effects on some records. But Larry Craig takes care of my guitar now and keeps it in tune for me because the Wang bar is it's a it's definitely a problem for for staying in tune. And you know, it's a whole uh, army of people behind the the guitar and the amp and the and the control switchboard that I have that's got the uh, motorized faders and everything so that I don't have to split the signal. I don't have to put my signal through anything to turn it up and down. I got motors on the knobs with the digital readout and all these different positions for the knobs. So I have all these presets so I can hit different things and turn the treble up and the, and, and the bass down and the volume up to get one setting. And then, so I have four different settings that I preset by setting the individual settings on the amp. And, uh, and I get uh, the kind of distortion that I need to get. And, Besides adding in effects here and there, you know. So those guys are all the guy. You know, there's so many people that are part of making up the sound, and Larry Craig and Sal Trentino, and and um, the whole uh, all those guys. I mean, I'm just playing the guitar, and and uh, you know, I couldn't do what I do without those guys. Mm -hmm.
And number eight from the great state of Texas, Mr. Stevie Ray Vaughan.
Stevie Ray Vaughan, born October 3rd, 1954, Dallas, Texas, died August 27th, 1990. Stevie Ray, one of the greatest of all time, true blues man. Uh, it's a shame he died way too young. I remember hearing the news, man. It was uh, summer 1990. I, I was 16 years old. I was listening to the radio. I think I was cleaning my bedroom at the time, and that came on the radio. And I remember it just, I just had to sit on the floor and just, I don't know, just collect my thoughts for 10 or 15 minutes. It was really shocking that he died. I was, I was a huge fan of him back there in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, he started as a session player. I, got, I guess he got his name out there with Let's Dance, and he finally got a record deal. Did a, a bunch of records with Double Trouble, like a blues trio, added a piano player and later and his horns and put up about five or six great records. A true bluesman, singing and soloing. All those influences that he absorbed through his brother and all the, the, the Texas blues guys, you can hear it in his playing, but it's uniquely SRV, right? It comes out like no other. Like the, the guy used uh, heavy strings on his guitars, those Fender Stratocasters, right? I love his, the SRV number one, that sort of dark brown wood colored one. It's uh it's been stickered and re-stickered a few times and it's the paint's been worn off and it's a cool looking guitar 62 63 stratocaster and he would use heavy strings right and he would bend the fuck out of them power in his fingers the way he would bend those notes like up a, up a tone up up a tone and a half right and he updated the blues guitar like t- he updated the blues guitar tone it was like a mix of Jimi Hendrix and Albert King right like he had the psychedelic hard rock of Jimi Hendrix and he had the the heavy blues of Albert King, right? With some Texas in there and also some Mexican food to spice it up, right? A little Tex-Mex in there, right? So many great songs. Scuttle Buttons, good one. Uh, Cold Shot. All right, I don't, I don't have the feel or the tone of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Couldn't Stand the Weather was a good one in there. I love that lick, the... Uh, the Something like that, I don't know. Superstition, his version of Superstition was great. Uh, Look at Little Sister, uh, his version of Voodoo Child was awesome. Uh, Texas Flood, slow blues, amazing. Lenny, uh, slow song, instrumental. Uh, he wrote about that about a girlfriend. Uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb was neat. I used to know how to play that one. It's like an E7. Pride and Joy, you know that one. Uh, Tightrope was great. Crossfire, that last album did in step was really good. Riviera Paradise, uh, it's like a, that's the slow kind of you know, moody instrumental on that. Amazing. Right, no one sounds like Stevie Ray Vaughan. The way he'd bend those strings just like makes me cry. Right? I love it. You know, I tried to play like him, but you know, I bought a book like one of those uh, uh, like tablature books of like twenty songs or whatever, and I, and I tried to play like him. I just couldn't get it. 
And it takes a lot of practice to get there, man. You can tell he's one of those guys that just, you know, wore the guitar like 12 hours a day. He was just constantly bending those strings, right? It's lots of practice. It's all real, like the bends, the groove, and the tone. There's good reason that there's a memorial statue of him in Austin, Texas. For a long time, I used a combination of a bunch of things. Um, well, different. I used to use lots of Fender amps, use super reverbs and vibra verbs, along with dumbbells, which are custom-made. And now I've I've gone to a smaller rig, uh, numbers-wise. It's uh, I'm using a Marshall Major uh, amp powerhead and a Dumble uh, powerhead, uh, which are I'm not sure of the wattage on. They're both about the same. It's an old Marshall and and this Dumble, which is a it's a custom-made amp out of California. The Dumble is, uh, that I'm using is a, uh, it's called a steel string singer. And it's, it's basically, it's a, it's cleaner when it's not like an overdrive monster or anything. It's, it's, uh, more like a, just a clear amp, you know. And I use, uh, two four by twelve cabinets and a Leslie. And I'm using, uh, a tube screamer right now. Uh, the reason I use Tube Screamers is because I still haven't found anything that I like better, and I'm still looking. And uh, a, an old Vox Wawa. And that's all. Was your brother a big influence on you? He's the biggest one I know of. He's responsible for me hearing everything from Lonnie Mac, Jimi Hendrix, Buddy Guy, B.B. King, Albert King, Freddie King, Grant Green, Kenny Burrell, Wes Montgomery. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. Django Reinhardt. My brother, my brother was incredible about finding, um, finding the right things to listen to a lot of times before it was actually out to for the public I don't know how he'd find it he just does he's, he's still he still has more sense about what to find to listen to for influences than anybody I know is he the reason why you played guitar yeah yeah he's the he's the one that got me started he was very smart about how he did it don't touch them and leave them out. How often do you play with them? Every chance I get. As well as with Albert King, or Albert Collins, or Bonnie Mac, or God, Robert Craig, BB King. I mean, those people. Those people are. It's, it's an incredible feeling to be able to play with them because it's all. It's all. It's all. Get it and go. Yeah. Actually, the first record I ever bought myself was a 45. The Wham was the A-side, the Lonnie Mac. On Fraternity Records, it was out in 63. I was a little guy about this big. I've worked and worked and worked and worked on that record, you know. I learned it right. When I first met Lonnie Mac, I'd been playing, I was playing at a place called The Roll Men. Um, we played. We played the second quarter of the Wham as Lonnie Mac walked in the door. 
he just stopped and looked at his friends and said, I didn't know I was playing tonight. <laughs> it was great. It worked out real well. We, um, we got to sit down and talk. Beaver and Wally were there the same night, too. It was quite a night. Texas blues is music, period. It's maybe rougher in some ways. It's maybe this or that. But it's all feeling. It's something that very few other people usually could play. It's just because that's the way it's come about. A lot of it came from there. The roots are there stronger than a lot of other places. Um, but Texas blues, actually, a good example of Texas blues would be Johnny Copeland. Johnny Copeland is pretty serious. Um, we've all listened to him, all of these Texas players. Denny Freeman is Texas blues. Angel Australia is Texas blues. George Raines is Texas blues. Um, Albert Collins, Albert Collins, Albert Collins, Albert Collins. Johnny Guitar Watson, whether you believe it or not, was very Texas blues. For years and years, he moved to California. His style is different now. He ain't forgot what he knew. Freddie King, over and over and over Freddie King. Um, David Fathead Newman. God, we can go on and on. There's, Texas blues is, is, is a feeling. It's something that I'm glad to know some about. There's just a feeling. It's, it's something that you can't go and read out of a book. It's something that you can't just take a bite of and eat and have it. It's something that's there. Something that you grow up with. I don't know if it's the dirt, it's the water, the air, but hope to God it's all of them.
Well, number seven, the other king on this list, the king of the blues, B.B. King. Keep you if I can, but baby, baby, you know. 
King, born September 16, 1925, in Itabina, Mississippi, died May 14, 2015. King of the Blues, B.B. King. Right? Such a good dude. I love him so much. Very real, very genuine, a true legend, a quintessential model for the bluesman. The space is so important. The space between the notes is so important, and you feel that. B.B. King doesn't fill up the bar with all these notes. Right? The space is just as important. Right? All his notes count. And when he hits that one note, it's so important, right? Like, he can hit one note, and it can make me cry, right? He can make you cry with one note. And you can recognize B.B. King with one note. Just play one note, and I'd be like, yeah, that's B.B. King. That's a, it's all in the tone, right, in his fingers, those trills. I can't really do it. But he would, he would do it to emulate a slide. Uh, he couldn't get the slide, so he used these trills to kind of um, supplement it. I can't do it, but he would kind of... Uh, get like a vibrato out of that note. All the power goes into that one finger on the note. Like his thumb isn't even on the back of the guitar neck. It's just all... I can't even do it. You're probably not even getting a, a good representation of it. Get that vibrato, right? Get that sort of trill going. I gotta work on that. But uh, so many great songs, right? Sweet Sixteen... Sweet Little Angel, Paying the Cost to Be the Boss, uh, Thrill is Gone is like a great minor blues, I love that. Three O'Clock Blues is the early one, She's Dynamite, Sun Records stuff is great. Uh, his version of Rock Me Baby is, uh, that's, that's amazing. Like you hear B.B. King play a slow 12-8 blues, man, it's, I don't know how he does it. And he would never play while he's singing, right, that was his thing. Like he would sing, his great voice too, like an amazing voice. His voice is almost better than his guitar playing, right, so he would sing and then in between vocal lines he would play these licks right and that's where you get the kind of bb king guitar playing the genius of bb king is those little licks in between his vocal lines and his solos right right a uh, little things uh, uh what's the one look i know uh with that trill, I can't play it though, right? Huh. There's one. I was fortunate to see him live twice. He had these BB King Blues festivals that he was doing. I guess when was that? Early two thousands. I saw him uh, one show with Jeff Beck, and then one show, another show the following year with uh, uh, Doctor John. But it was so great to see him live, to see him walk out on the stage in, the, in a tuxedo, and 
you know, with, with Lucille, the guitar Lucille, that the black Gibson. It's like an ES-335 hollow body Lucille. Story of the Lucille guitars. He was playing a gig at a club. And somehow a fight broke out. And, uh, you know, the place uh, caught on fire. And, uh, you know, B.B. King had to exit, but he left his guitar in there. So he, I guess the place was burning down and B.B. King ran in there to get his guitar out. He heard later that the fight that broke out in the club that started the fire was over a girl named Lucille. So B.B. named his guitar Lucille to remind himself to never do anything uh, that stupid ever again. I was fortunate enough to be on tour in the fall of 2015 and we ended up doing some gigs down in Mississippi and I was able to get to the B.B. King Museum that's down there and I think it's uh, Indianola, Mississippi and this was about uh, you know five six months after he had passed away in the previous May I was down there like in October November and they just started creating this mausoleum for him and I could see where they had his his body was buried there and they didn't have like a gravestone or anything on it but I could just see the uh, the pile of dirt so after I took a tour of the museum which was amazing I was able to uh, go out to his gravesite there where they were building the mausoleum and have a you know a quiet moment with uh, the late Mr. King just before I went in the army about 42 I think I heard of a guy called T-Bone Walker and that was the first electric guitar I ever heard. And I heard the sound like this. Uh, he was playing like uh, dominant ninth chords, which was something I'd never heard about, you know. And it would go like this. Like that. So later on, I was acquainted with jazz by listening to Benny Goodman's band. And they had a guy called Charlie Christian. And oh boy, did that do it, you know. Um, uh, Charlie Christian was a master, I think, on diminished chords. And then he'd run maybe a, a diminished something like this. this. kind of thing you know and it keeps you doing this so I liked them and that started me to liking jazz a bit and then later a friend of mine that was in the army when he came back to Mississippi where I was he brought some records by a fellow that I'd never heard of called Django Reinhardt so he said um, I know you like guitar so I brought a couple records back and I want you to listen to this fellow and then I heard something that sounded like this. So clear, you know, much clearer than what I'm playing. And I fell in love with him. That really blew my mind. And from there until this day, those people that I've mentioned have been my idols. Now, but I think what caused me to play the way I do, not only because I like these people so well, but I have a cousin named Booker White, and he used to play with a slide on his, his finger. And I could never get that. Well, I've got stupid fingers. They just wouldn't work. So in order to get somewhat the type sound that he had, I would trill my hand like that. And I think over the years, I've done pretty good with it. I still don't have it right. But I could just, just keep trilling it like that. 
sustain the sound. Now, this is not proper as far as playing guitar because you should be able to, you know, trill your hand like this. You know, not, not that way. <laughs> but that's the only way I can manage it. So, for instance, if I was going to play like uh, Blind Lemon, I would still have to use that because that's B.B. King now, I think, a mix of all these people out there. Well, so after so long, after listening to Blind Lemon, after listening to Lonnie Johnson, when I would try to mimic them or do as they did, which I didn't do a very good job, I would always wind up... To me, to sustain that, it's kind of like... Uh, I'm not very good with words either. But if I'm talking to try and make a point to you, okay, I might start it, and it's like telling a joke. If I, if I start it like so, like that, cut it off, you don't get the point. But if I do, then I feel that you'll laugh. That's when I'm really stressing the point. I want to really get, otherwise it's in here then. Johnny Hodges, for instance. I guess if I had a kept going, I would. But I like the way he, he seemed to just lay on it. Well, that's the way I feel it. And if I was going to keep, you know, playing it, that's the only way I see that I could make it sound. So playing the blues to me, even though it's proper for the person to learn all of the positions possible, but then you'll find it's kind of like, in my, in my case, it's kind of like an ingredients, an ingredient rather, that you might would be fixing the malt. You put something in, you know, put a little chocolate in it, the milk and so on. Well, I think what I'm trying to say, you find the one that sounds the best to you, but learn them all, which I didn't. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we want to go way back way back
That'll do it for this show. We're going to conclude the countdown with my top six favorite guitarists of all time. I can hardly wait. I know you can't either. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you next time. Whoa. That's the show, friends. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, TrampsLikeUsPod.com. Communicate with us on Facebook, on our Tramps Like Us podcast group page. Rockin' and Rollin' and Whatnot Sidecast is a non-profit audio fanzine created by fans for fans and is available for free. We are not affiliated with Bruce Springsteen or any of the artists featured on the show. If you have heard any music you like, please find it and purchase it via Amazon, your local record store, or wherever music is sold. As always, gratitude and respect to all of the great musicians and performers we feature on the show. Stay cool and keep rocking and rolling and whatnot. Yeah, the pizza coast, can we break for a second? Is the pizza here? Yes. Let's give him a slice of pizza. Let's pause for a second. Can we? Great. You get one too. Yeah, I was looking for a piece of paper, not a snake. You opened your drawer and there was a five and a half foot snake? At least. What kind of snake? Copperhead rattler. Holy moly. No, excuse me, cotton mouth. Holy moly's. Yeah. Those things aren't pleasant. We shot him, we shot him at least four times with a 357 Magnum, and he got mad. Oh my God. I'm serious. He stood up about this high and went and split and went back under my house. You never killed it? No, he shot it four times. Oh. At least, maybe five. Oh God. (coughs) I mean, it's kind of hard to miss a snake from here to your knee with a 357. Oh. Oh. There were guts and everything all over the doors, but it was like he didn't care. And he just it went. It just made him mad. That's scary. And they travel in pairs. Oh, good, good. We never found the other one. I'd have some serious work done underneath my house, I think. Uh, find somebody to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I'm serious. Well, excuse me, first thing in the morning. Just open the door in there. I mean, I mean, I open the door like this, you know, it went, oh, oh. yeah, yeah. God. All I saw was this big part that went all the way across and all the way back across the drawer. Never saw it anywhere even tapered down at all. Oh, God. You know, I saw the middle part that was about like this and here's about like so. That's scary. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, in the top drawer. In the top drawer. I mean, we killed the desk. <laughs> the desk is dead, the snake is alive and well. Ooh. Lonnie, Lonnie, when we were doing that record with, I was doing that record with Lonnie mm-hmm. Mac. They killed a rattle, cut his head off. Two days later, well, a day and a half, I was gonna look and see how, you know, how big it was. The snake was still moving out of the, he said, they don't die right away. <laughs> he had no head, <sighs> but he was, when I touched his rattler and his, and his hind end, the snake went like this. It went like curled up and it had no head. He gutted it and skinned it. <coughs> the heart was still beating by itself sitting over there. That's Snakes are strange. It takes them a long time to die. I don't know what the deal is. I don't want to mess with them too no, much. No, I don't want to be the one who has to find out. I don't out. like them. I don't go for it too much. Imagine a snake standing up and going, No. After you've done it, should have been dead. <laughs> you know? <laughs>